0: From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet
1: Bharara. The opportunities that the Americans and the coalition allies have spent, literally billions and billions of dollars to try to provide for young Afghans, to give them a shot at a future, that's gone. And that was the wholly expected and predicted outcome of the decision of the United States to withdraw.
0: That's Ian Bremmer. He's the founder and president of the Eurasia Group, a political risk consultancy, and G Zero Media, which provides coverage of international affairs. Ian's been on Stay Tuned a number of times, and this week I invited him back to the show so we could have a frank discussion about the situation in Afghanistan. August 31st marked the formal withdrawal of all U.S. troops from the country, effectively ending 20 years of U.S. involvement in the war. Addressing the nation on Tuesday afternoon, President Biden said, — This decision about Afghanistan is not just about Afghanistan. It's about ending an era of major military operations to remake other countries. — The Taliban, who quickly regained power as U.S. soldiers executed their withdrawal over the last few weeks, celebrated the departure of U.S. troops with gunfire. Ian and I had a candid conversation about the criticism of the withdrawal, and I hope you'll find that it was a good-faith discussion about what happened in Afghanistan and what the future may hold. That's coming up. Stay tuned.
2: Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
0: Now let's get to your questions. This question comes from Twitter user Chris Miller, who asks, what is your take on the House January 6th committee? asking telecom and social media companies to retain phone records and social media posts related to the Capitol attack. Could that include members of Congress? Well, that's a great question, Chris. My initial reaction is good for the chair, Benny Thompson. To get to the bottom of what happened on January 6th, you need information, you need documents, you need communications. And you can tell from the reporting of the requests that the ambit is pretty wide and pretty deep. In fact, according to a spokesperson for Benny Thompson's select committee, The panel issued preservation requests to 35 social media and telecommunication companies. That's a lot of companies. That's a lot of communications. As a general matter, I think that none of this would be particularly controversial. You've had committees, whether select or otherwise standing committees, in both houses of Congress. When they have subpoena power, they issue them. They get documents. Sometimes there are motions to quash. And there are reasons why you can't get all the material you ask for. But it's not a particularly controversial subject or practice. What makes it complicated is the last part of your question, which was, could that include members of Congress? And according to reports, yes, it does, because there's a lot of reason to believe that certain members of Congress were involved in the lead up to January 6th. You want to know what kinds of communications they were having on January 6th, which people were trying to tamp it down, which people were trying to provoke it further. And among the people who are apparently in the crosshairs of this preservation request are representatives like Lauren Boebert of Colorado. Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, Jim Jordan, Andy Biggs, Madison Cawthorn, Matt Gates, and a few others. Now, the eventual issuance of subpoenas or, or requests for information from fellow members of Congress makes this a little bit of a messy affair. As far as I know, there's no precedent for that kind of thing. And at the end of the day, if you were seeking information directly from a member of Congress or testimony directly from a member of Congress, who knows how it would turn out at the end of the day if they chose not to comply. Here, of course, the preservation request has been issued to third-party companies, and eventually, presumably, actual information requests will go to those companies, and it'll be up to the companies whether or not to comply. Obviously, the members of Congress have some legal recourse. They can ask for a protective order. They can ask for an injunction. They can do all sorts of things, arguing—I don't know if it would be credible or not, but arguing—that the speech or debate clause renders some of their communications off-limits. It's uncharted territory. It would probably be a long legal fight, but that's the proper course for this kind of thing to take. I believe since the time you asked your question, Chris, Republican Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy issued a pretty blunt statement. He's clearly not happy that members of Congress could be included. Here's what he said. Quote, If these companies comply with the Democrat order to turn over private information, they are in violation of federal law and subject to losing their ability to operate in the United States. Get this. If companies still choose to violate federal law, a Republican majority will not forget and will stand with Americans to hold them fully accountable under the law, end quote. That's a pretty extraordinary statement from the sitting Republican leader in the House. There's been a lot of debate in the, in the few hours since he issued that statement. Does that constitute obstruction? You know, I, I don't know. I think there's a, a plausible argument that it's, you know, some sort of obstructive conduct. I don't know if you really make out the elements. And I can say whether it makes out a proper case for obstruction, it certainly is unconscionable for him to be threatening specific action should there be a Republican majority in the future against telecommunication companies, who, by the way, would be doing nothing wrong or illegal by complying with the select committee's request. In fact, upon request, I don't think Kevin McCarthy's office has provided any details about what law was violated, what statute has been breached, because none has. This question comes from a Twitter user at LynnP27. Who asks, is there any chance any of the Kraken lawyers will actually be disbarred or have any serious professional consequences? Thanks. Hashtag AskPreet. Well, Joyce and I talked about this on the Insider Podcast this week, but it's worth amplifying my thoughts on it here in response to your question. Of course, you're referring to Sidney Powell and a number of other lawyers who represented Donald Trump in what a lot of people have called the big lie. In case after case, alleging there were all sorts of improprieties and bizarre outlandish interference with the election. None of which was proven to be true and none of which was even justified based on the allegations that they were making. In one particular case in the Eastern District of Michigan, a federal judge, in response to a request from the other side's lawyers, conducted a sanctions hearing and found that these individuals should be sanctioned. Among other things, Sidney Powell and her colleagues have to pay the lawyer's fees for the other side. And among those folks are lawyers for the city of Detroit who had to defend the frivolous lawsuit brought by Sidney Powell and her colleagues they will also be required to take continuing legal education courses in the standards for pleading and in election law. And then getting to the point of your question, the judge found the conduct or misconduct so serious, the failure to investigate claims, the failure to verify any of the allegations made by people who they were putting forward, the failure to answer questions candidly from the court. She thought they were so serious that they should be referred for discipline. As Judge Parker says in the opinion, quote, this warrants a referral for investigation and possible suspension or disbarment to the appropriate disciplinary authority for every state bar and federal court in which each attorney is admitted, end quote. And then, of course, the judge points to two specific violations of the Michigan Rules of Professional Conduct, Rule 3.1 and 3.3. One addresses the issue of meritorious claims and contentions, and the other addresses candor toward the tribunal. It's a bit hard to say in advance what the relevant bar authorities in each of the jurisdictions will do with this referral. But I'll say a couple of things. One, the referral is not being made by a good government group. The referral is not being made by the adversary. The referral is not being made by an ordinary citizen. It's being made by a respected, sitting federal district court judge that carries weight and bar authorities will consider that. Two, it's not being done on the fly. It's not being done on a whim. It's being done after a very extensive record has been made. There were briefs. There were counterbriefs. There was a very extensive hearing that I've talked about before and I've written about before. So there is a very lengthy, extensive record combined with a very thorough, rigorous opinion mandating these sanctions from the judge. So there's a lot for state bar authorities to work with. Arguably, a lot of their work has already been done. They'll probably do additional investigation, but they have a very good grounding to decide whether or not to suspend or disbar. The other point I'll make is this is only one instance in the Eastern District of Michigan. Similar contentions, not verified, were made in other jurisdictions as well. And so it is possible that you will have not only the record made in the Eastern District of Michigan, but in other courts as well. And the combination of those things may be difficult for the lawyers to overcome with respect to suspension or disbarment. But once again, we'll have to wait and see. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. The secret to Mint Mobile's premium but affordable wireless plans is that they sell them totally online. Mint Mobile was one of the first to cut out the costs of retail, and they then pass those savings on to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you could say goodbye to an overpriced monthly plan or unexpected fees. You can get three months of premium wireless service for $15 a month. That includes unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed 5G data. Signing up is super easy and painless, and you don't even need a new device when you do. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just fifteen bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com/preet. That's mintmobile.com/preet. You can cut your wireless bill to fifteen bucks a month at mintmobile.com/preet. Forty-five dollars upfront payment required, equivalent to fifteen dollars a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code tuned. This week marked the official end of U.S. involvement in the war in Afghanistan. Two decades, two trillion dollars spent, hundreds of thousands of lives lost, and a heated debate about U.S. foreign policy. Ian Bremmer, the founder and president of the Eurasia Group, joins me to talk about the decisions Biden made and what it means to have a good faith debate. Ian Bremmer, welcome back to the show.
1: I've missed you.
0: Uh, I have missed you also. You will recall that we have a nickname for you on the Stay Tuned podcast. Do you recall it?
1: I did, I did not recall that I had an explicit nickname. Are you going to have to I call
0: you. I call you Regis Philbin. You're my Regis Philbin because you have appeared on the podcast more than any other guest in the same way that Regis Philbin appeared on the David Letterman shows more than any other guest. So how do you feel about that comparison? I asked you last time.
1: I, I feel like I've been slipping on my Prevagen.
0: So you and I are recording this on August 31st in the middle of the afternoon, literally moments before our president is going to speak to talk about what the end of the U.S. involvement, and I say U.S. involvement in the war in Afghanistan, because as you have pointed out and others have pointed out, the war in Afghanistan is not over. It's just that the U.S. is out. And, And can I stipulate a couple of things for this conversation? One of the reasons I'm excited to have you on is, you know, there's a lot of anger about some of the actions taken the withdrawal, the way the withdrawal was done, what it means for the future, who's left behind. And there's a lot of rancor in the debate and in the analysis. And some people, I will say, and maybe we'll get some mail about some of the things that you and I will talk about, some people have gone tribal, uh, either their guy can do no wrong or on the other side, Joe Biden can do nothing right. Shocking. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on was to be sort of you know, methodical about the analysis and to be fair about the differences of opinion about various things, um I will play devil's advocate from time to time. I will say what I sometimes say in my law school class that you should assume I have no views and I'm just trying to facilitate the conversation. Can we stipulate that you Ian Bremer a person of good faith?
1: Yes. Yes, pre- you know me well. And um, you have no you have no I have particular the problems, dog in the fight. this is not one of them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Look, and and you <laughs> have you have problematic views from time to time. Maybe some of your views about Afghanistan are problematic too. But you come at them from a position of, of what you think is correct as opposed to trying to promote a particular partisan view. Is that fair?
1: I, I certainly hope that's fair. I mean, I, I can't imagine that the analysis of this for me is uh, less important uh, than any ideological baggage or backdrop.
0: Do you make more money if you have one view versus another view? Uh,
1: it'd, it'd be really hard to know that. Um, I mean, it's funny. I, it's very clear that my organization did better under Trump. I mean, from a personal tax perspective and from a people are really concerned about the United States, so let's talk about geopolitics perspective. But in terms of the view that I have, and I've done everything I can over 23 years to try to build an organization where people value me and us because they truly think that I'm gonna tell them what I really believe, not what they wanna hear. And so in that regard, to the extent that I've succeeded, I think that I actually probably make more money by being honest. And even if that's not true, I, I think it's true, which is maybe the most important thing, right? Because otherwise it just hurts you.
0: We've now spent far too much time building up your credibility. So I- Okay, let's, I, let's I, do I, something I, about that.
1: I apologize. Okay, can't we? Can and we and, and
0: just just one that? more stipulation before we get into the mess of this discussion, yeah, yeah. which has been, you know, I think for a lot of people, very difficult, no matter where you are on the spectrum and I want to try to be fair about it, would you also agree, is it your view that the important staff and cabinet secretaries surrounding Joe Biden, whatever you think about their competence, whatever you think about the actions they've taken, that they are well-intentioned and are trying to do the right thing, whether they succeeded or not?
1: Uh, I think I would probably say that about most of them. Sure. Um, I I think they are trying to do the right thing, but from a perspective, which is decide in a context which is decidedly american uh privileged and involved in a foreign policy establishment that is not necessarily well or always aligned with that of the global interests Okay or that's fair. in Afghanistan. And, yeah. and
0: and we'll get to some of that. Now there's a distinction that you make and that I make and a lot of people make and I think it's a distinction that gets conflated and some people think there shouldn't be a distinction but I think it's folly not to make the the demarcation between two things and that's the withdrawal of troops, the decision to withdraw them and to exit versus the execution of that withdrawal. You have said, as recently as 11 days ago, and maybe even more recently, quote, the failure lies not in the decision to exit Afghanistan, but in the way the U.S. went about leaving. Indeed, the decision to leave made initially by Trump and ratified by Biden remains strategically sound. And then you say that carrying it out well is an entirely different story. Can we first just talk about the decision to exit And I think that the majority of the American public, based on polling, and lots of people on both sides of the aisle, do agree there's a consensus that exiting was good. But not everyone thinks that. And some of the people who got us into the war in Afghanistan in the first place don't necessarily think that. So can we spend a couple of minutes just at the initial phase of discussion, just talk about the argument on the other side? Sure. And And as I understand it, I'm oversimplifying it for the sake of time. There are people who have said, and they have some credibility here, look, We had a force of only about 2,500 to 3,500 troops in Afghanistan. American troops were not dying. may not have been true of, of Afghans, but American troops were not dying. You know, a general stability was in place in Afghanistan and in Kabul in particular. And it's a not high price to pay to make sure that that country did not become, again, a haven for terrorism. And there was a good life or a better life for lots of the citizens of Afghanistan. And even though it's the case that there was a consensus in the United States that we shouldn't be in that country and we shouldn't be, be continuing that war in whatever form, it's not like people were out in the streets protesting. And so it was a low-cost solution to maintaining stability, which could have been maintained for some period of time. What do you say to the people who, who argue, well, we could have just stayed there instead of causing all this upheaval and mess?
1: I think it's a credible argument. Um, And I I also think we should recognize that Biden was making that argument when he was vice president. Um, You remember when Obama was arguing for the surge in what was it, 2009, that Biden strongly opposed the surge. But Biden did not, at the time, support a U.S. complete withdrawal from Afghanistan. He, He thought that a small... Ongoing American presence and force helping to maintain intelligence, stability on the ground was a useful thing to do. And the model here is not Germany or Japan or South Korea, um, allies of the United States where the U.S. is defending against external threat. Um, The model is Colombia, where the United States has a relatively small presence advisors, intelligence, some capabilities, but not not doing direct military strikes. And where the local government is, absolutely supports the US presence, but there are paramilitaries on the ground that are violent and threatening um, domestic stability. And so I think that there is a real argument that the United States could have maintained with our coalition partners, a ongoing presence with relatively little cost um, and really very low, if any, uh, threat to the U.S. soldiers, servicemen, and women on the ground. Having said that, once President Trump gave the game away to the Taliban and you have thousands of Taliban fighters uh, that are set free from jail and the Afghan defense force's Losing significant territory and the Taliban getting stronger. I also accept fundamentally Biden's argument that what he inherited as president was not do we stay with the status quo or draw down? It is do we expand back to where we were or more, or do we leave? Because where we are presently will not prevent. The, the government from collapsing and the Taliban from taking over. So that's, I think, the way we should frame that decision.
0: You know, that's an interesting point. So I take it what you're saying is it is a good faith argument and a credible argument, but not the best argument or the best approach for the U.S. forces to have stayed in Afghanistan indefinitely. But the people who are making the argument in favor of staying are not necessarily acting in bad faith, except that some of the arguments that they make I wonder if you think they're made in bad faith. You made the reference to the the falsity of the analogy to American troops in Germany and Japan and South Korea. I mean, there are smart people who are saying this is like that. As you pointed out, I think, very smartly a second ago, this is nothing like that. Are those arguments being made in bad faith?
1: Oh, no. I think a lot of people just don't pay attention to context and they just say whatever they've just said.
0: Former generals and members of the Council on Foreign Relations are, are not paying attention?
1: Oh, I think that when you wind people up in the heat of the moment, they say stuff, they post stuff. It is so easy to post a tweet and not think about context. And once it's there, you don't want to pay attention, call attention to it. And so you hope it just goes away if you make a mistake. I think that happens a lot. Um, But no, look. I think the bad faith arguments are about people um, that are um, saying that Biden has this made this disastrous decision and are unprepared to accept what he was given by what he was left with by the Trump administration. It is bad faith to argue that this is
0: that, that Biden owns all of this. Because there's twenty he's only eight months into his presidency. No, but
1: not even that, Creed. I'm going farther than that. i yeah. it's bad faith to say that the decision to leave is all on Biden and and the and the negative, because even if he had executed well on the decision to leave, and he did not, right? But even if yeah, he we're had, gonna get to we're gonna get to that, it was going to be a lot worse than it needed to be because of what the Trump administration had done over the previous year. And, and anyone that is, that is unwilling to accept that is arguing in bad faith, in my view.
0: That, I think that's a good point. You know, one of the reasons people, or some people, and because there are a lot of subgroups here and they overlap a little bit depending on the issue we're talking about, is that the reporting is that, that most of the generals, most of the people in the Department of Defense were of the view and made the recommendation to stay and keep the status quo, and that Biden overruled them. Fair to say, if that's true, that he owns it?
1: Uh, Fair to say that he didn't spend a lot of time uh, getting advice from the senior generals in the Pentagon on strategy as opposed to on tactics. And we've heard this from Jake Sullivan in the past days, I I think, quite differently from Obama and from Trump. Uh, I think in both of those administrations, they ended up getting a lot of advice on strategy from the generals, and that prevented them from ending the war. Biden really wanted to end the war. They had conducted the internal Afghan policy review. Biden made the decision, and the people around Biden, who are very loyal and very capable and they have been around him for a long time, basically said, we don't need to make this decision more broadly than this small internal group. And I think that there are a lot of generals that are gonna be pretty pretty animated that they feel like they should have been listened to more uh, from, from Biden. I think that's a fair point. But again, does that mean that he owns the decisions around withdrawal? No, I, look, I think there's a very credible argument to be made and it's a hypothetical, so we'll never know. But if if Trump had not engaged directly with the Taliban, you know, sending Pompeo to meet with their leaders, inviting them to Camp David on 9-11, pushing the Afghan government to free these thousands of Taliban, and by the way, not engaging the Afghan government together with the Taliban. Again, everything about that engagement was not to ensure stability in Afghanistan. It was simply as a, to, to facilitate the U.S. troops leaving as fast as possible. I think if that had not happened, it is very reasonable to ask why wouldn't Biden have still had the same position he had back in 2009? Maintain the status quo. We'll never know. Uh, but you have to give Trump credit for um, part of that decision-making. Uh, you have to, you have to this, this is at his feet too.
0: So I think that's, that's a pretty fair Assessment of the various arguments on both sides of the issue of withdrawing at all. So now let's talk about the execution of of the withdrawal about which you have been fairly withering. Yeah. And you said two weeks ago, and I'll let me just read a couple of things and then give an opposing point of view and then ask for your reaction. You said, look, there's plenty of blame to go around for how this war started, as you mentioned in the last number of minutes. But then you say, you said this on August 16th, two weeks ago. We have to look at the close at the staggering incompetence of execution to bring this war to a close to withdraw american troops from afghanistan then you also say the execution has been an extraordinary failure and my question to you but you can't answer it yet because i want to you know give an opposing point of view okay, cool. is is did, did you and others overstate the criticism 15 days ago there's a gentleman david who who is mounting a you know a fairly significant defense of all of biden's actions or many of biden's actions And he says, in response to the argument that you have made and others have made that the evacuation was bungled, he says, no, it started off badly, but turned out to be masterful. The administration and the military adapted quickly. The airlift is one of the biggest in U.S. military history. About 114,400 people had been evacuated as of Sunday. Do you want to revise your statement of catastrophe and failure?
1: No, no, I, I certainly accept David's point. Um, that the evacuation um, has been enormously large and significant. Uh, And also the the fact that the U.S. managed to engage with the Taliban, having just taken over the country to help ensure over 100,000 Afghan civilians got out, that's a big deal and that's a positive. But I absolutely do not change my view that the execution of this um, withdrawal um was calamitous it was a debacle and i i particularly am surprised about the mistakes they made given how capable um biden's advisors and cabinet but so are. so
0: but so let, but let's talk about some of those i i, I presume and i've seen you're writing on this and there are various failures i think you identify four or five or six of them an intelligence failure a coordination failure a planning failure a communication failure and, and i get all that Let's pick one of those. And there's a whole bunch of things that people have been debating. On the intelligence military failure, the fact that Tony Blinken himself, so I I see the point in your favor, was saying, we're staying, everyone is staying, the embassy is staying. I think he said something like... And uh, whatever happens in Afghanistan, if there is a significant deterioration uh, in security, um, that could well happen. We've discussed this uh, before. I don't think it's going to be something that happens from a Friday to a Monday. That's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. Exactly what happened. On the the other hand, the counter argument is, if it is true, literally nobody saw, nobody foresaw the immediate collapse within a period of hours or days of the Afghan government and the Afghan army. And in in, I'm making a hypothetical argument to you, in a universe in which something was completely unforeseeable. Can anyone be blamed for not seeing it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I can't imagine that, they, that the intelligence was really that bad, as opposed to they didn't want to hear it. I think we'll end up finding out that those scenarios were described in intelligence assessments and were Well, certainly forward. people are
0: leaking out. I mean, this happens also as people point the fingers at each other in leaks. There has been some reporting that there were dire warnings about how quickly the government and the army would fall. But I think even in retrospect, not in retrospect, in retrospect, in hindsight, it's easy to sort of see because it was so quick. Do you really think they deserve, I mean, I guess where in particular would you lay the blame?
1: So just a couple of days ago, I had a a call with some friends. Um, I don't want to say who they are um, because it was a confidential call, but I will say. You can tell me later. I, I will. I will say, and you know a lot of these characters, former foreign ministers, prime ministers, a few members of Congress, and a lot of international affairs luminaries, about 20 of them on the call total, probably leaned pro-Biden 14 to six, in part because it's an international group, asked them two days ago, um, quick survey, how do you think Biden has handled scale of one to 10, the withdrawal? Uh, and we got uh, one person said five, uh, one person said one, the average was around a three. Uh, and these are people that are out there that are generally quite sympathetic to Biden. This is absolutely not a Fox uh, OANN, you know, sort of group. Um, and, uh, so I, and I will say that of the mistakes that they made, The one that I am personally most disappointed by is the failure of coordination. It is the fact that when you as the United States fight together with your coalition allies, the Canadians, the Europeans, uh, some of the former Soviet states like Georgia, for example, Ukraine, Middle Eastern allies, they've all got boots on the ground for 20 years we ask them to do this, they fight with us, they bleed with us. And then you do an Afghan policy review by yourself. You don't engage them. You decide that you're going to leave by yourself. You tell them. You don't ask for support. You don't say, might we do this together? You don't say, are you guys interested in doing more? No, you make the decision completely by yourself. When it fails, Prime Minister Boris Johnson, your special relationship calls you up personally. You don't return the call for 48 hours. you got a G7 meeting. They say, please go beyond August 31st. You say, absolutely not. That is absolutely unconscionable. And I, I just think that for a president who wanted to put America first behind him, to have such indifference to the perspective on this fight for allies for whom the fall of Afghanistan matters a lot more than the United States, from a refugee perspective, from a terrorism perspective, from a geopolitical interest perspective, all of those things. Afghanistan, very, very far from us, not far from a lot of the countries that were engaged in the fighting. I, that is where I really get upset. And that that's where, I, as someone who had really hoped, that the Biden administration was going to be much more interested in rebuilding trust and commitment with our allies, that they would have done a better job.
0: So I, I take the point. And when we get to sort of future consequences and fallout of all the decisions made over the last few weeks and, you know, arguably for the last 20 years, I want to come back to that question. But putting aside how some allies might think of us at the moment, and I'm not Denigrating, that's a very important point. And notwithstanding being caught flat-footed at the outset two weeks ago, do you believe if there had been more coordination and, and, and better communication and some of the other things that you've criticized, that as a substantive matter today, in terms of how many people we've gotten out, both Americans and Afghans and allies, that we would be in a, in a much more materially advanced position than we ended up being in?
1: Well, one, if we had engaged with the allies from day one and they had participated with us in the Afghan policy review and the Brits and the French and the Italians had said, actually, this does matter more to us. And we understand that it's politically impossible for you to increase the troop levels, but we are willing to do so. Well, that would have been a wholly different conversation. Now, I have no idea. But that would, that, I know that, that seems that, unlikely, No. Well, Boris Johnson, when the U.S. was pulling out, Boris Johnson was trying, went to the Allies to see, after the decision had been made, whether others would be willing to stand up for their troops. And it appeared that he was willing to. So again, it's a hypothetical. We'll never know. But at the very least, we would have made that decision together. It's kind of like when we're defending the Afghan airport and 13 American servicemen and women are killed by a suicide bomber. And, and other countries are coming to us and say, please stay longer. Well, if we had been defending the airport together as a coalition, they wouldn't be asking us to please stay longer. We would have been taking that decision collectively with the risks on us collectively. It just would have, I mean, it's obvious, but, but I will say to your point, Preet, I will, I will say that assuming that the United States had still persisted in with taking all the troops out at the same time, in the same way, once we engage with the allies, yeah, I, I don't think that having the allies on board would have made much of a difference in terms of the evacuation. Right. Um, well, that's that's an imp- that's an important point. Concession, you might even call it. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. It's a concession. It's, yeah. it's it's a it makes a difference. I, I give a lot of credit, particularly to the soldiers on the ground. I mean, when they know you talk about this, they, they were briefed the day before that there are suicide bombers coming after you and they didn't retreat behind the fences. They stayed there in front of the gates trying to pull Afghan civilians to safety. I mean, that's an extraordinary thing. And my God, I mean, we got to stand up for the American soldiers as a consequence.
0: We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Ian after this.
2: Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. If
0: you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So you mentioned, and we should talk about, the horrific suicide bombing at the Kabul airport that killed many, many, many people, including 13 American service members. Is it your view, based on what you know and the reporting, that had the Biden administration done these other things, coordinated et cetera, that they would have been able to avoid that terrorist attack, it, it strikes me that that's a different thing. Do you lay blame at anyone's feet for that? That, In other words, just to am- amplify the, the point for the question, isn't it, isn't it reasonable to conclude that at any point where a mass evacuation was going to take place, whether it was earlier, whether it was more organized, whether it was later, that ISIS-K was going to try to strike and it was foreseeable that they would get through?
1: Well, let me me give you um, why I don't think that's a completely fair question. I mean, you will remember that the videos that made the greatest impact on everyone coming out of Afghanistan were American transport planes trying to get the hell out of Dodge when the airport was overrun with terrified Afghan civilians, some of whom actually hung on to the sides of the plane and fell to their death. Um, What a horrifying thing. Now, imagine, Preet, for a second, if ISIS-K had their act a little more together and were there with the crowd. um, And so you're not just hanging off the plane, you're blowing it up as you take off. That could happen. Right. Uh, And so I do think that the the level of and this is not about whether you talk to the allies or not. This is just bad intelligence um, and bad planning. No, I think at no point if you're leaving Afghanistan, should you be in a situation where Hamid Karzai International Airport is overrun with Afghan civilians. You have no idea who they are as your transport planes are trying to take off. That is that is a scenario that just never, it was completely unforeseen and it never should have happened. I, I, yeah, I put that on the Biden I, I, t- I sure. take I
0: take the point, and it's a good point as far as it goes, but it occurs to me when you're saying that, that there's an argument to be made in favor of sort of a hasty retreat that, had there been more telegraphing and had there been more time and had there been more sort of, you know, slow and steady evacuation, would that have given ISIS-K, as you mentioned a second ago, these these are your words, would that have given ISIS-K time to get their act together such that they may have been in 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 a more sort of impressive position to launch attacks rather than their having to scramble at the end?
1: It's hard to say. I'm hardly a military tactician, right? So I don't want to second guess the generals who actually are on the ground and live this experience. But from what I've heard from the generals, uh, the decision in the middle of the night to leave Bagram Air Base, never mind whether Bagram is useful strategically for the U.S. and the coalition forces for evacuation—I've heard both sides of that argument. But the message that sent to the Afghan defense forces who were fighting capably when the Americans were on base and safe and fighting and dying and losing territory to the Taliban, that is what precipitated the collapse. And that is, again, where the generals are saying the Biden administration should have been listening um, to the advice that they were getting from the Pentagon. But I, I, I defer to people who know a lot more about that situation than me.
0: Another argument people make, and it's sort of bound up in the discussion we've already been having but I wonder what your response is. And I think some people are saying this because they want to see Biden succeed and they don't like the bad faith argument and they don't like the double standard as between Biden and Trump that they think is the case in some quarters. They say, look, some amount of this chaos would have been inevitable. And it's just the nature of the beast. And our mutual friend, Fareed Zakaria has said,
1: But none of that changed the fact that despite all its efforts, it had not been able to achieve victory. It could not defeat the Taliban. Now, could it have withdrawn better, more slowly, in a different season, after better negotiations? Certainly. But the naked truth is, there is no elegant way to lose a war.
0: Fair point in some
1: regards. Completely fair point. Um, I, I think that Biden, Biden's expectation after the policy review was that the Taliban was going to eventually take over given Trump's decision so in other words the perhaps the most important effect of his decision which is that tens of millions of afghan civilians will live under a system of extraordinary repression and the opportunities that the americans and the coalition allies have spent literally billions and billions of dollars to try to provide For young Afghans, to give them a shot at a future, that's gone. And that was the wholly expected and predicted outcome of the decision of the United States to withdraw, irrespective, irrespective.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, that's an interesting point. There's literally no person saying that once we left, we had built up the forces sufficiently, that there would be peace and harmony and stability in Afghanistan, led by Ghani and and his government. No one is saying that. The only, dis- the, only, the only debate is they thought he was going to be able to hold you know, the fort for some months or maybe a year or two. And the issue is it happened in a day or you know, what seems like a day. I think you're, you're right to point that out, that people have lost sight of that a little bit. Can, can I ask you this question? Now let's get to the end of the, of the withdrawal and then we'll talk about the future in a moment. There are, by the, by the Biden administration's own admission between 100 and 200 Americans who want to come out, who are not out. And there's a lot of very heated debate about the terminology that's used. Are they stranded? Have they been abandoned? Have we left Americans behind? You had General McKenzie saying, uh, you know, I think very somberly, that we got as many out as we could. And even if we spent another 10 days, we couldn't have gotten everyone out. They They claim that there's a plan for continuing to extract people. They have some understandings with the Taliban. Should... And again, neither you nor I uh, is a a military strategic expert. But should we have stayed a little bit longer just to extract everyone?
1: I'm actually less concerned about this one. I hope I'm not proven wrong by events on the ground. Uh, The reality is we got well over 100,000 Afghan civilians out of the country. And that never would have happened were it not for the cooperation of the Taliban government in Afghanistan. And I don't think there are a lot of people that would have expected that ex-ante. We also got thousands of American citizens out. That you might have expected because the Taliban knows there's going to be hell to pay directly from the U.S. military if something happens to them. I think that we have uh, not just economic leverage, but a reasonable amount of confidence That the Taliban government will continue to work with the United States to at least get the Americans out, the American citizens out, not the SIV holders, not Afghan civilians, human rights, uh, you know, uh, opposition members, none of those. But the American citizens, I think so. And I say that in part because the um, American military leaders who have been briefing the public on this have have acted pretty damn confident about the fact that the U.S. will not need to engage militarily. In other words, they'd be hedging it out a, a lot more.
0: This is the same group, Ian, yeah. who was mm-hmm. acting pretty damn confident that things were not going to collapse in three days. Different so, group. Well, overlapping group. no, I take Overlapping point. group.
1: <laughs> uh, overla- overlapping group, Preet, all I'm saying is that they've been, now been actually working with these former Taliban fighters now suddenly running the country for a couple of weeks and they have been as you know giving these lists of people to the Taliban as they're getting them on buses and bringing them to the gates so they get through the Taliban checkpoints and that's actually worked and that's uh, you know a little a little surprising
0: and alarming right because there are some people who would say that giving over these lists is a little bit too trusting and those things can double as a list of people once we're gone if they don't get through the gateway and they don't get on the planes are people that the Taliban can eliminate.
1: And they have to get out. And if they don't get out, you've got a problem. And it looks like, from the New York Times reporting, that that is indeed a problem for hundreds of students of the American University in Kabul. And we may end up with huge egg on face and moral culpability as a consequence of that.
0: I don't know which reporting you looked at most recently. The Peter
1: Baker piece. Um,
0: I, saw. I saw that the New York Times made a correction ah. and that and that the head of the university... Um, you know, people need to be rigorous when they quote folks, was that the the president of the university said that the list of names was given to the U.S. military, and then separately said he understood that it was the U.S. military's practice to share names with the Taliban. And the U.S. government has denied that that happened in this case. Well, then
1: there's no story there. So they made the correction that I'm glad to hear that, because everything I had heard until then was that every every uh, individual that had been provided to the Taliban was someone the Americans had, you know, sort of engagement directly with and were bringing them um, or, or knew they were going on an individual vehicle. And this was to get them through the Taliban checkpoint. I see no other way to do that once Kabul has fallen. So I, again, I, I'm not, I accept that you never want to be in a position where you're answering questions about, how can you trust the Taliban? I mean, if you're answering questions about how can you trust the Taliban, you're probably losing, right? I mean, let's, well, but, let's be clear.
0: There's another problem, but, right? There's, it's easier for you and me to say, trust the Taliban or not trust the Taliban. That assumes a certain amount of command and control within the Taliban, right? There have been stories, and Richard Engel talked about this on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. One could argue that the leadership of the Taliban appreciates the opportunities they have at this moment to be more reasonable, to coordinate, to cooperate, while they're sort of in the limelight, uh, if that's an appropriate word to use, not clear to me and not clear to others that that message of behaving, at least for the time being, has made its way all the way down through the ranks of the Taliban, fair concern? I think
1: think that's fair to say. Again, I mean, I think we have no idea. Is there a Taliban 2.0 that actually wants to engage constructively with the international community? Will their short term political interests hold more sway over their ideological orientation? Um, How much hierarchy exists functionally within the present Taliban group, and how stable is that likely to be? Will they continue to hold power, or will Afghanistan devolve into civil war? And how much is an ISIS K insurgency? going to undermine the ability of the Taliban to get anything done whatsoever? How compromised is the Taliban government by ISIS operatives that are getting that information? Or are there bribes going on that, you know, sort of there's a, there's a ransom on the head of individual Americans, if you can get one, I mean, it would be a pretty big deal. With those couple hundred Americans still there, can we have some hostages? I mean, this would be a massive crisis for the United States for the Biden administration if they could pull it off. So I don't I don't pretend that Biden is out of the woods on this even now that all of the American servicemen and women have left the country.
0: Do you have a view on these scenes we've we've um been shown of service dogs being left behind?
1: I've been Are you asking me, uh, would I prefer to get the humans out before the dogs? Yeah, I think I want to get the humans out before the dogs. Right. but (laughs) Don't you want to get the humans out before the dogs?
0: Yeah, but I also want to get the rest of the Americans out. And I want to get the dogs out too. And so so that, that, that goes back to my original question. And again, I don't know. I'm not an expert.
1: On service dogs?
0: On getting out the people and the animals that we wanted to get out. Should we have abided by the strict midnight August 31 deadline? Or... Stay a little bit longer. I believe you quoted Biden recently in social media as saying, we're going to get everyone out who wants to get out. That pro- this, this goes back to the communication point, which I think is, is in some ways your most solid point. It's one thing for there to have been a mess. We were told there wasn't going to be a mess. in any circumstance- I, al-
1: I wanted the allies involved in this. I did not like the fact that the United States was telling its coalition partners, again, the people, the governments, the sovereign governments- that gave that risked their citizens on the line in Afghanistan for an attack on the United States. And then when they ask us to stay beyond August 31st, we say talk to the hand. I was very uncomfortable with that. It may have been the right decision. I was very uncomfortable we made it by ourselves. Very uncomfortable with that.
0: I want to talk about the future. And and you think about future risk and you write your report at the beginning of every year. So so we mentioned already what might be the case with the Taliban. And there's, you have the Taliban, who is at odds with us and has been historically, maybe cooperating now in a security agreement of some fashion. They're at odds with ISIS-K. What kind of a relationship are we going to have with the Taliban? And, and what does this arrangement do to the old phrase, the enemy of my enemy is my
1: what now? Well, that's, that's a fairly easy question. Uh, because uh, you'll remember, after Obama had the red line on Syria and said Assad must go, and that failed, the the reality is the the American relationship on the ground with Syria no longer mattered anymore. There were countries in the region like Russia and Turkey and Iran, and what they. There were their relationships on the ground or what mattered. They were the ones that determined the future of Syria and its orientation towards the world. And so going forward, now that the American troops are gone, the United States will be at best a marginal influence on the future of Afghanistan. It's going to be China and Russia and Pakistan and Iran. And the nature of the U.S. relationship with the Taliban just ain't going to matter that much. That That's the important point. Well,
0: except that, what happens in Afghanistan doesn't stay in Afghanistan, to coin a phrase. And one, I think, credible concern is that you might have a surge in it becoming a terrorist haven. You know, I've not been to Afghanistan myself, but, you know, a lot of folks that I worked with have been. And we brought a lot of cases relating to material support of the Taliban and other f- folks in, in, in narcotics cases, which provided the funding for the Taliban in large part. Shouldn't we be worrying about that? And then alongside that, The United States is still going to maintain its ability to strike back within the country, even though there are no soldiers or airmen in the country. And if you continue to have drone attacks like the one reported in the last couple of days that killed seven children, how does that affect the outlook of our relationships with that country and other countries?
1: Again, Syria also concerns about the export of radicalism. I, I will say that you know, even though the U.S. is still going to be involved, I'm sure, in hunt, finding and hunting down using signals intelligence, using satellite imagery and others, um, the degrading ISIS-K and other extremist organizations operating in Afghanistan, the proximate threat from Afghanistan is in Afghanistan to the Afghan people. And then it's to Pakistan and India and China and Russia and Iran. And then it's to Turkey and Europe. And one of the reasons why it was comparatively easy for Biden to make the decision to leave is because Afghanistan is not a priority one or priority two for U.S. national security. The pivot to Asia is where the Americans are focusing. Dealing with Russian cyber attacks is where the Americans are focusing. I I think that will continue. So I don't discount the importance of your question It is a problem for the United States, but I don't think it's going to make anywhere close to the headlines or the national security importance and decision making in three and five and 10 years time as it has occupied us over the course of the last 20.
0: That all depends on what happens and on what political figures can blame Biden for in retrospect based on the departure.
1: It's going to hurt Biden. I think this will hurt but I think this is actually going to I, I hurt thought your in view terms. I do.
0: I thought your view was well I guess your view was that they have made a political calculation in part that the overwhelming majority of Americans didn't want to be in this quote unquote forever war. Correct. And they wanted out. And yeah. and they don't really think about I think you've said this also but at least I know others have. They don't really care about foreign policy so much. They don't care about Afghanistan. They have cared for the last couple of weeks because it's become very politicized and legitimately we care about people, and we care about our armed service members, and we care about our allies. But so long as no other immediate disaster unfolds, this will be kind of forgotten, and people will appreciate the bravery and courage of Joe Biden in doing what I think you made this point as well in doing what neither Trump nor Obama had the guts and, if I might say, it the balls to do. Fair?
1: Yeah, it's, I think it's a. It will. It is and will be in the long term still a popular policy overall. But I think that the damage to Biden's credibility in the way it was handled, as well as giving the Republicans an awful lot of speaking points that are a hell of a lot more damaging than Benghazi was for Obama or Hillary Clinton or Susan Rice, I do think that matters. It doesn't matter as much as $3.5 trillion for infrastructure. It's at the margins, but I do think there will be a cost. I think the couple of weeks that we've seen here, the Americans, we still have to get out 20th anniversary, Taliban running around with American equipment and material. you know, sort of their flag over the embassy, all of that. Yeah, I think it's unfortunately, I think execution does actually matter. It's going to leave it's going to leave a mark. Let's put it that way.
0: Last question. How dispiriting is the debate and argument going to be about the settling of refugees from Afghanistan here in the U.S.?
1: I'm pretty optimistic about. Oh, you are. Um, Well, look, I I don't think we're going to accept anywhere near the numbers that need to get the hell out. And I think in very short order, the issue will not be how do you get the Afghans out, but where are you going to put them? Because in the U.S., we're talking about what 150,000, 25,000 Canada, 25,000 UK. I mean, this is not. I mean, these are not the numbers we're talking. 40 million people live in Afghanistan, and millions of them are going to are going to be fleeing a Taliban-led country or or a civil war. Um, but I think for the numbers we are talking about, given the fact that these Afghans served with, stood by, fought with Americans, I don't think America is Twitter at all. I think the average American in communities are going to be very welcoming of these people, and I think it'll I think it'll go well.
0: I hope so. I really hope so.
1: I do too. Ian
0: Bremer, aka my Regis Philbin. Thanks for it. Thanks for insight. Look, I think this was a good discussion and, you know, this is a great discussion. People, great people, pre- people will have, have different points of view. Uh, and I think, you know, there should be more opportunity for people to be, you know, rigorous and thoughtful and honest about how they feel about things and why they feel those ways. Thanks again, Ian.
1: Great to be with you, you.
0: My conversation with Ian Bremmer continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, Head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. So folks, of course, in many different ways, there's a lot of heavy stuff going around, but I wanted to end the show this week on a little bit of a hopeful note. It is of course true that with respect to COVID, the Delta variant is spreading like rapid fire throughout the U.S., As you all know, this variant of COVID-19 is much more contagious and largely affects unvaccinated populations and is ravaging certain states, putting healthcare workers and immunocompromised folks in life or death situations. US health officials report that 97% of hospital admissions and 99.5% of COVID deaths are occurring among those who are not vaccinated. So we have a severe problem of non-vaccination in this country, but there is some good news. A recent NBC poll of Vaccine Attitudes found that while around 70% of all adults are vaccinated, only about 13% said they will absolutely not get vaccinated. The rest were somewhere in the middle, unvaccinated yet potentially more willing. Some were waiting to see if the vaccine was harmful to others. Some said they would get it if it became required. And this week, an Axios-Ipsos poll reported that the number of vaccine skeptics was slowly and steadily decreasing as the number of vaccinations continues to increase. A few weeks ago, towards the beginning of August, the pace of vaccinations hit its highest pace in weeks. The White House reported recently that the daily number of people getting their first dose of the coronavirus vaccine has risen by more than 70% since mid-July. And there have been multiple days recently when the number of shots has exceeded 1 million. On average, about 450,000 Americans a day are getting their first shot, up from 260,000 a little over a month ago. So what explains this promising trend? Well, it seems there are a number of factors in play, I can think of three. First are the vaccine mandates. In order to protect its population, cities like New York, where I spend a lot of time, are now requiring proof of vaccination to enter indoor spaces unmasked that has an effect. One issue that was keeping people from getting the vaccine was the fear that it was merely experimental. Well, that also changed recently when the FDA granted full approval of the Pfizer vaccine, making it the first to go beyond emergency use status. And that's leading the way to more mandates the U.S. Defense Secretary ordered the country's 1.4 million active-duty service members to be vaccinated. Here's another example. In Washington state, they saw a 34% leap in vaccine appointments after state officials imposed a vaccine requirement for public employees and school workers. Here's another reason. Some communities have gotten better about their persuasive tactics. Online communities have popped up to discuss fact-based concerns about the vaccine, like the Facebook group Vaccine Talk. As the Washington Post reported, Vaccine Talk was started by a group of moms who desperately wanted a place to discuss the vaccine without misinformation and online fighting. The group calls itself an evidence-based discussion forum where people can voice their opinions without fear of judgment. And finally, there's a somewhat macabre reason why the vaccine numbers may be going up. And it may be because of story after story of a horrifying narrative of anti-vaxxers losing their lives. There are people who, I think, don't understand the proper concept of freedom or liberty and are paying the ultimate price. Here's one story, that of prominent conservative radio host Phil Valentine. Valentine often scoffed at the need for a vaccine. In a December blog post entitled The Vax Facts, he wrote, quote, If you're not at high risk of dying from COVID, then you're probably safe for not getting it. End quote. He said further, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'm just using common sense. Well, then Valentine got COVID but he put a defiant face on it. He had to leave his show, but he promised his listeners he would be back on air in a matter of days. He said, quote, "Unfortunately for the haters out there, it looks like I'm going to make it. Eventually, Valentine had a change of heart. The station put out a statement, quote, Phil would like his listeners to know that while he has never been an anti-vaxxer, he regrets not being more vehemently pro-vaccine and looks forward to being able to more vigorously advocate that position as soon as he is back on the air which we all hope will be soon. Well, Phil Valentine never got back on air. He passed away last week from COVID-19. And Valentine is just one of many such tragic stories. Mark Bernier, a conservative radio host from Florida who called himself Mr. Anti-Vax, died of COVID-19 over the weekend. And Caleb Wallace, an outspoken leader of anti-mask demonstrations in Texas, well, he died last week after a month-long battle with COVID-19. Maybe these stories are making a difference, and maybe we're turning a corner. And if nothing else, maybe this stat will give you some hope too. Ariel Edwards-Levy tweeted a report that, quote, The share of American adults who have been at least partially vaccinated, something north of 73%, is greater than the share of American adults who know the earth revolves around the sun, 72%. Well, thank God for that. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Ian Bremmer. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to Tuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. The Cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozerstaden, Noah Azalai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, chris boylan and sean walsh our music is by andrew dost i'm preet barara stay tuned